You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hello, my name is Jamie Lemke. I'm a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. And my guest for this conversation is Dr. Deanna Thomas, Professor of Economics at the Hyder College of Business at Creighton University. Deanna is also Director of the Institute for Economic Inquiry at Hyder College. So in addition to an impressive scholar, an impressive educator, she's also been a successful academic entrepreneur. Um, Deanna's particular area of expertise is regulation, and in particular, the unintended consequences that regulation can bring. A major focus of our conversation today is the idea that regulation might actually have a regressive impact. So what this means is that regulation designed to protect the most vulnerable might actually wind up imposing significant costs on those who can least afford to bear them. Um, she also has some fascinating work on political entrepreneurship and how it is that those who participate in politics wind up crafting the rules of the game they are playing. Um, but the bulk of the conversation is about this regulation issue. Uh, regulation imposes costs. So it asks a business, a person, a group to undertake some activity they may not have otherwise. And it's asking them to document the fact that they've done so, which is also not an insignificant cost. So if a market is reasonably competitive at all, these costs wind up getting passed on to consumers in the form of more expensive goods and services. And if businesses are able to make up the cost internally, there's a good chance of whatever they have to spend on regulation coming out of the wages of their lowest income workers. So regulations, which again are often motivated by this desire to protect those who are already less advantaged, wind up removing wages, removing disposable resources, increasing the costs of consumer goods for that group. So not exactly what most of us have in mind when we think about protections for workers or consumers. Um, and Deanna in this conversation presents some really great empirical research that her and her co-authors have been doing on this subject. Um, tons of fascinating real world examples. We also talk about the implications that the regressive impact of regulation has on the democratic character of our political system. Even though it's not designed that way, a political system in which some have the control over the regulatory system and others bear the cost of that regulation is fundamentally not a space where people are on equal footing and enjoying equal respect and equal voice. We also talk about some of the challenges economists and policy analysts face when trying to talk about these issues. How do cost-benefit analysts incorporate human lives into their calculations in a reasonable human way? How should policy analysts think about a consideration like equity and everything that accompanies living in a society of equal opportunity and equal voice rather than pure net cost or benefit? 
One of the major implications of the research Deanna discusses here today is that there is value to leaving choices about risks up to individuals. Um, so I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. I think you'll enjoy the empirical discussion and the ideas, and they might even challenge the way you think a little bit about the regulatory process. So without further delay, Dr. Deanna Thomas. Thanks so much for joining me today, Deanna. Thank you for having me. Um, we've been having a lot of fun with this Liberalism for All series. And to kick off, I'd like to kind of get us into the topic by just asking what liberalism means to you. Yeah, um, so, I, you know, I think liberalism to me is just the idea that individuals have an, a relatively uninhibited right to... Uh, to choose for themselves, right? So that they have the liberty to choose for themselves how to conduct their own lives um, and how to how to how how to go about doing things in in their lives. Um, yeah, that's I think the essence of liberalism. Um, now that's obviously not the modern liberalism that a lot of people are familiar with. I think it's probably more of a classical liberal conception of what liberalism is. But that's that's what comes to my mind when I think of liberalism. How did you come to that perspective? Is that something you brought into economics or something that you learned through the process of studying economics? Um, so so for me, uh, most of, of my background in economics uh, and, and, and thinking about liberalism comes from, from studying economics, um, both in undergrad and, but also in grad school, obviously. Um, I always kind of had this idea in the back of my mind that something wasn't quite right in the way that that things were going so in, in politics in Germany so I grew up in Germany and and I was kind of in high school when there there were lots of reforms going on under um, Gerhard Schröder at the time and he was he was reforming the welfare system um, and so there was a lot of talk about incentives and in, in the media at the time and stuff like that and so that's kind of my my the origin of how or when I started thinking about all of this is kind of comes out of that you know so how do you design welfare programs in a way that both serves the needs of the people that are that are served by the programs but also um, provides the incentives that you want to provide for for um, individual responsibility and and kind of making the best out of your own life you know work um, and individual fulfillment um, which I think gets lost a lot. Um, so that's that's kind of where my, my personal journey, I think, um, thinking about these sorts of things begins. But then, yeah, the, the training and the ideas all, or the more formal ideas all come um, from, from studying and studying especially at George Mason University. Yeah, so it sounds like you have a pretty consistent theme then, and part, you know, part of what you first got interested in economics about the you know the impact of these welfare programs and the reforms that that connects directly to some of this research we're going to be talking today about the way regulation impacts people in the course of their daily lives. Um, so I know it's always a little bit of a I feel like sometimes almost in economics it's almost a dirty word to talk about having any kind of ideology or 
normative impact on your research? I know, you know, we both have a background in constitutional political economy, so I suspect we share a perspective that it's a little more complicated than that. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit of how do you think about this relationship between kind of a commitment to liberalism or to normative individualism and how you conduct your research, how, how it shapes that research or, or what you choose to work on? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. And, and I think you're right. Um, at least when we, even when we teach um, principles of economics, we, or at least people used to make this big point out of saying there's a difference difference between normative and positive economics um, and all those sorts of things. So normative always has this connotation that it's ideological and, and less pure or whatever you want to call it. And so um, I think, I, I ultimately think that that's um, kind of a simplistic, maybe too simplistic way of thinking about it, because I think at the end of the day, all theories start with normative assumptions about um, human agency, what people do, what motivates people. Um, and so I think that that a better way to think about it might be uh, to ask, you know, what are the normative underpinnings of the theory that you're presenting? Are you aware of them? And have you thought about them? Um, I think to say, to make this hard and fast distinction between positivism and normativism is kind of difficult. Yeah, it, it almost asks us to do something superhuman. Um, but but also, I think in the social sciences, people do have ideas and belief systems, and we're, we're trying to study people. We're not trying to study, uh, you know, physical or chemical reactions, something like that. So, you know, we have to deal with ideas and how they matter. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's kind of a funny thing, too, about, you know, behavior, the rise of behavioral economics. But um, if you're you're studying, you're studying human behavior um, and you're studying bias in particular, um, then what you should be aware of first and foremost might be your own biases and how they inform your your approach to to research. Right. Um, so confirmation bias is, is not just something that you observe in the subjects that you study, but it's also something that, that you have yourself. <laughs> How do you, what do you do to, to guard against that in your own work and in your own thinking? Um, I try to be open to, I think, empirical evidence. This is something that, you know, Brian Kaplan, I think, articulates really well, just as a you know, sort of Bayesian perspective on how do you deal with empirical evidence that contradicts your theory. Um, I think you take into consideration the the evidence that's out there. Whenever you start digging deeper into a particular topic, you kind of peruse the literature relatively widely and, and try to take into consideration all different sources of evidence. And and if uh, if you find that your priors aren't confirmed overwhelmingly, then you you update right slightly at least <laughs> in the in the direction of of you know maybe the opposite of what you used to believe or something like that or moving away from what you used to believe. Um, okay, let's dive into this research on regressive effects and, and connect that into the conversation. You've done uh, several papers recently that connect to this idea of regulation or of policy potentially having a regressive impact. Um, just to begin and kind of set the stage, what are regressive effects? Yeah, so, you know, most people 
um, people, most people know and have heard the idea that income taxes are supposed to be progressive. And, and um, I think that, that what that means is that income increase, as income increases, your tax burden, your marginal tax rate on the dollar um, increases. Um, so most people are familiar with that concept. And so um, regressivity of, of policy is just essentially the opposite. So the intention of a, of a progressive income tax system is to tax individuals who earn higher incomes at relatively higher rates. Um, regressive income taxes would impose relatively higher costs on lower income earners. So the tax system is not uh, regressive, or the income tax system isn't regressive. But um, a lot of other government policy tends to be, I think, regressive in that um, a, a higher burden of the policy, of the cost of the policy are borne, at least in relative terms, by lower income households. And all of these areas of government policy, regulation, law, they're crafted in a way where supposedly they're supposed to be universal. They're supposed to apply equally to all people. So what are the different mechanisms you're looking at that might allow a, a law or regulation that's crafted using general language that doesn't have a lot of privileges or exceptions carved out? How can even these kinds of ideal, you know, seemingly ideal laws and regulations from a perspective of equality wind up having this regressive impact? Yeah, uh, so, you're, so you're right. Um, most rules, most regulation applies to everyone equally. So it meets the sort of generality norm, I guess. Um, there's, it doesn't pick on any particular person or group of people. Um, so it, it might seem a little odd that to say that, that its effect is still on net regressive. Um, but I think there are two ways in which theoretically and, and also empirically, um, you might expect that regulation and government policy overall ends up having regressive effect, uh, regressive effects. So um, economists, you have to understand from 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 just a starting point, you have to understand that economists treat regulation kind of as a cost of doing business, um, and I think that makes a lot of sense, right? So if you think about it for just a minute, you realize that um, when government regulates business, it seeks to somehow change business behavior, and that means that it alters the cost of doing business. Um, and usually what we expect expect from an economic perspective is that businesses are already profit maximizing and lowering cost to the extent that they can. And so um, when you change what business does, you end up always increasing the cost of doing business because businesses are already maximizing. Um, so if you take, for example, you know, I don't know, OSHA rules about um, like safety of um, employment facilities, like something maybe maybe related to fire exit or something like that, right? So OSHA has rules about, you know, exit routes. Um, they have to be a permanent place, a permanent. They have to have a permanent place in the workplace. Um, most most um, business facilities have to have a, at least two um, ways of egress that are as far apart from each other as possible in order to prevent, you know, one or both of them being. Um, being um, being somehow blocked by fire or smoke or some, something like that. Um, and then they have rules about what sorts of materials you have to use in the construction of the exit routes because um, they have to be fire retardant for a certain amount of time depending on the size of the building and stuff like that. So those are all rules that are intended to protect people from fire, and that's a good thing, right? So we, wanna, we, we don't want to have disasters where people burn up in buildings and stuff like that. So... Um, but the, but the end effect or the net effect of the rules is to increase the cost of doing business because you now have to come everybody now has to comply with uh, with those rules and not only because 
you know, compliance um, is expensive in, in terms of the money that you have to spend on making sure that you have the right materials in place and you have two exit routes rather than just one or something like that, but also just the cost of figuring out what the rules are and ensuring that you are compliant, right? So there's kind of two ways in which costs increase. Um, so regulation increases the cost of doing business. Now, um, obviously businesses have to somehow um, cover those costs, right? They have to um, somehow figure out a way to either lower costs in other places or increase prices in order to ensure that they remain um, at least somewhat profitable or even, even just breaking even, right? A business won't stay in business unless it can make a profit or at least um, cover all its costs. So when costs increase, then that means businesses have to somehow figure out ways to to lower cost in other areas. Regulatory cost increase, so they have to lower cost in other areas. And that can go kind of one of two ways, right? So from an economic perspective, perspective we think about it as like demand and supply. So there is, um, on, the, on, the, on the demand side, you could try to raise prices somehow, right? And cover your higher costs that way. Um, or you could um, somehow figure out a way to lower your cost of production. And that might just mean um, getting rid of waste, in which case that's not a, a problem that's actually probably a great effect, right? So if that's the only thing that happens, that's great. Um, but since we believe that businesses already operate relatively efficiently, what we'd expect to happen as a result of higher cost due to regulation is that either prices have to rise or wages have to fall or um, the cost of capital has to somehow decrease. So the rents that are paid to capital have to be lower. Um, and e empirically, what we find is that um, that's actually true, you know. So regulation, at least um, when when you look at look at it, you know, across the country or across different countries, um, seems to increase prices um, and also lower wages for some groups, um, and um, and and that's probably the case because um, the elasticity of um, you know labor demand is a little bit. Um, higher than the elasticity of demand for capital. So businesses tend to, when their costs rise, kind of shift from using labor in the production process to using more capital because um, you know you can shift out of using lower skilled labor, shifting into using higher skilled labor, and then have higher productivity um, by augmenting that with, with capital than you would have had using a bunch of lower skilled laborers. Um, so it looks like, empirically, the effect of regulation is to tend to lower wages and um, increase prices. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of the route. <laughs> Long story, but no, it's an it's an uh, important story though. And so, without asking you to make any predictions, because I know that's an extremely dangerous thing to do, but right now we're in a market where um, capital costs are going crazy. There's no immediate route for a lot of businesses to reducing those capital costs. Um, the real estate market is going insane in the United States right now. So, I mean, is this a particularly dangerous time to put some of these regulations in place? Is labor kind of the only area for adjustment? But labor is so um, so high in demand too. So I, I don't know, maybe there's, maybe there's nothing you can say. What, what's your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, it obviously depends on the on the relative scarcities, right? And I'm not sure you're right. Like, I don't know, and I'm not going to make a prediction about that, right? There's scarcities all over the place, so it's hard to tell what the net effect will be. But yeah, depending on, you know, what what factor is relatively 
um, relatively scarcer, right? Um, that's kind of going to influence how everything ends up working itself out. But I, th- I think kind of the big picture is that overall it can generate this kind of double whammy where not only are you at risk of your wages being lowered, but also of the consumer goods that you need access to going up in price. Um, so this body of regulation winds up having potentially a pretty significant effect on just day-to-day life. Um, and I take part of your argument to be that one of the reasons why this has a, you know, a more significant impact for low-income households is that they're closer to their budget threshold. So, you know, you know, the consumer goods that you need to get by for a week is a much bigger percentage of your income. Um, you, you know, you wind up at risk of getting closer to that margin of not being able to afford what you need. Is that part of the, the story? Yeah, so part of, the, part of the story is definitely that, um, that lower-income households um, tend to spend a larger share of their budget on, um, on goods that are relatively heavily regulated. Um, and so as a result, they just bear a larger burden of the, of the overall cost relative to high-income households, you know, not in absolute terms, but relative to their budget. Um, and then, uh, and then the, the other story is just that um, even if even if they didn't consume those relatively heavily regulated goods at higher rates, relatively higher rates than higher income households, um, they might end up bearing a larger burden just just because more of their budget is spent on on consumption overall. Um, so there's there's kind of two you know relative effects there that make that that make the impact on low-income households larger uh, through prices um through wages the the you know the empirical evidence there also suggests that um lower skilled laborers lower skilled workers um tend to be more negatively affected by regulation than higher skilled workers um and the argument, so this is a paper by James Bailey and myself, that, and the argument that we make in that paper is we find that, that low-income, low-income, sorry, low-skilled workers tend to bear a majority of the burden of, of regulation. And we, we think that the reason that's the case is because um, compliance-relevant professions, so, you know, uh, professions like accountants and lawyers, people that um, end up having to work for firms because they have to comply with regulation, um, those those people end up being in higher demand um, when there is more regulation. And so they end up earning higher, relatively higher wages when regulation increases. Um, but the regulatory burden has the opposite effect on relatively low-skilled workers um, for similar reasons, right? So they end up, um, Businesses have to hire more compliance officers, but then they let go some of their their other workers in order to compensate for the higher cost of regulation. Yeah, I can imagine uh, someone who maybe has a a different uh, preconception coming into this body of research or this conversation and, and thinking, well, Maybe it disproportionately impacts those lower income workers, but those are also the people that the safety regulations are designed to try to protect. You know, these are people who are going to be working in transportation and in heavy industry. 
um, doing manual labor. Um, and so we, we veer kind of pretty quickly into this conversation about who gets to determine the values within that society um, and what kinds of trade-offs are worth making in terms of being willing to um, get a higher degree of safety relative to the amount of money you can make. I mean, this is a really old debate within the history of industrialization. It goes back to the mid-19th century and you know, activism about trying to improve safety in those very first factories. Um, I'm sure you know Ben Powell's research on sweatshops around the world and and how it is that people make those difficult, or not really how it is, but what trade-offs the people who have to make those difficult decisions to work in those environments are facing. Um, and in one of your papers that I read preparing for this conversation, you make this observation, which I thought was really great um, and interesting. Um, but you suggest that when we make these decisions about risk collectively as a group, we don't wind up just disadvantaging people who might be lower income. We also wind up taking that choice away from them. And instead, we impose the preferences of those who are relatively wealthy onto those who have lower incomes. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, the, obviously, that is just on the surface of it sounds extremely problematic from the perspective of being in a democratic society or certainly of a liberal society. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, you're right. I think you know that risk reduction is kind of the, a difficult topic, right? Because um, humans are bad at making rational calculations about risk a lot of the time, right? I, I I do this myself all the time. Whenever I get on an airplane, I'm kind of terrified. But when I'm driving in my own car, I feel really safe. And that's, you know, that's not rational because, um, as most people know, um, airplanes are a lot safer than cars, right? Um, or air travel is a lot safer than traveling by car. Um, but but despite all of that, despite the fact that we're all relatively bad at, at doing those, or calculating risk or thinking about risk, um, we do make decisions about risk all of the time, right? Whenever we decide whether or not we're going to um, eat that bag of chips or <laughs> go to the gym today, you know, or something, we affect our own um, mortality if you want, right? Like at the margin, maybe maybe it's a really, really small effect, but um, we make decisions about what sorts of risks we're willing to take all the time. Um, we, you know, we decide whether or not to have smoke detectors in our house and what neighborhood to live in and um, whether or not we're going to seek counseling for our drug and alcohol problems or whether to ignore them, right? Um, so those are all decisions that affect our our, our lives um, significantly, and they all are associated with relatively high, high mortality rates, right? So if you look at um, the, the, uh, the different causes of mortality, right, for Americans, um, the highest... Uh, the highest mortality rate is associated with heart disease and cancer, right? Um, and I think it's about like a 16 and 10,000 chance of, of death from, from heart disease in, in 2020. So it's always right around 16 to 18. Um, kind of varies a little bit. And right now it's relatively low because of, of COVID. But um, yeah, so so those are private risks that we face and that that um, we have to kind of navigate. You, you know your own 
um, genetic makeup and where you're coming from, what sorts of things your parents and your grandparents might have died from. And so you take those into consideration as you're going through your life. Um, public risk reduction through regulation um, kind of abstracts from the individual. And so um, it can't account for particular circumstances as well as you might be able to individually. So, you know, we kind of... Um, we might, we might gain some advantage in terms of being able to account for risks more rationally, or at least that's, that's what advocates of regulation might, might argue. We gain um, a, a more rational perspective on risk when we, when we use regulation to mitigate risk. Um, but then on the other hand, we lose a lot of information, a lot of particular information. And so public risk re reduction strategies kind of have that downside. So um, there are some, some ways in which government regulation addresses risks um, that are relatively high. So for example, um, you know, like, again, OSHA regulation of like arsenic levels in water um, for different production processes or even for, for human consumption, right? There's like a, I don't know, 18 and 10,000 or something like that. Um, chance of death from arsenic and so OSHA regulation addresses that ex-ante risk um, for a target population and that's that's equivalent roughly to the the risk of death from heart disease um, but then there are also lots of other government rules that regulation that addresses much much smaller ex-ante risks so for example like rules about floor emergency lighting on airplanes right so all airplanes have these like strips on the ground and the in the floor and the on the of the aisle that kind of light up and they always talk about it when they make the safety announcement in the beginning if you listen <laughs> you've heard that before right floor emergency lights will illuminate the aisle <laughs> um, in any case so those um, those lights are supposed to help people evacuate from an airplane in case of some sort of emergency landing and there's like smoke and fire and you can't see um, but the ex-ante risk that they those rules address is only about two and a hundred million um, chance of death so much much smaller risk um, and so then it's, it becomes questionable whether or not it's reasonable to do those sorts of things not just because we are aware of the risk and we rationally consider it but also because um, the, the risk is so small, right? So what we're doing when we're forcing um, airplane manufacturers to take account of those rules is to increase the cost of air travel, maybe not by much, but um, by some amount. And that means that we now have publicly decided for people what sorts of risks they should or should not mitigate. And, and we haven't asked whether or not that's something that people actually care about. Um, and so what that means is that we're kind of crowding out private risk reduction strategies, right? When the cost of um, air travel increases as a result of regulation, then that means people spent more money on air travel, and that means they have less money left over to spend on, I don't know, eating healthier or going to the gym more often or something like that, whatever it may be that they could have done privately to address risk. Right, or maybe, so the argument, or maybe it's just as simple as they drive on that family vacation instead of taking yeah, exactly, the flight. Yeah, which is... Yep, but it's just much more expensive, right? Yeah, that's right. We're about to get in the car and go on a family vacation, and it's kind of terrifying to think about. Oh, no, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry <laughs> we're talking about the risks of car travel. Still, still worth, I'm sure, the joy that you will experience on that family vacation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so con connected to this conversation about um, crowding out these these private risk reduction strategies, can you give us a sense or, or do you have a sense of how significant of an impact um, this is across the entire body of 
like like relative to the size of our entire regulatory sector it's of course it's an issue that's going to be incredibly difficult to marshal any kind of interest group to combat because it's incredibly dispersed but um, but you could really imagine all of these little pieces kind of adding up is this a political trap that we're stepped in or or do uh, not that we're i guess that we've stepped in in the past but now we're stuck in is what i meant to say um so is this a political trap that we're stuck in are there meaningful ways to work towards not collectivizing these decisions so much um, but yet still enabling people to be safe? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, public choice says it's going to be difficult, <laughs> right? So it's going to be difficult to get out of this situation where um, regulatory agencies are, you know, people call them the fourth branch of government, um, um, they have they have a lot of power to make rules. Um, a lot of the time, those rules reflect the preferences of either interest groups or, you know, maybe the bureaucrats themselves who tend to be higher income people. And so, um, preferences of lower income groups aren't reflected. Um, preferences of maybe consumers and workers aren't reflected to the same extent that preferences of um, corporations and, and and business interests are. <clears throat> Um, and it's all kind of systematic because of the way that the political system has evolved over time with, um, you know, special interests having so much influence at all of the different levels. Um, yeah, and, and, and it's not a, it's not like a rosy picture at all. Um, there are some, there's some potential um, for optimism if you think about, um, you know the fact that the fact that that the system itself is so complex that kind of it creates competition between regulatory agencies, which is, is potentially at least an upside for um, for the design of the rules. Because you know, in terms of if, whenever you have contestability in a system and in an institutional structure, um, then then that at least um, makes it such that the rules aren't completely myopically designed by you know the decision makers, but account for some sort of um, at least some set of preferences of the population. And so, you know, it could be that as the regular regulatory apparatus grows more complex, um, competition between regulatory agencies increases and so you get better outcomes. But it could also be that it's a, it's an, an anti-commons and that um, we're just creating more and more points of um, having to ask for permission, which just creates um, stagnation and... and um, overall kind of a, a slower growth environment, more less dynamic um, economy, and also um, by implication, a less um, flexible world to live in for people, right? So I can't um, resolve all my own problems because I have to ask permission to do certain things first. I'm, I can't, um, you know, raise money for my um, Girl Scout trip over the summer by selling lemonade on the street because I have to have a uh, license to sell lemonade first from the city or whatever that I live in, right? So, um, yeah, so that's kind of the the theoretical, like, field, if you will. I'm not sure that I have a lot of optimism about the direction all that is going, but at least in, in theory there is a way that there could be some tension in the system that, that makes the rules relatively better, although still stifling. Yeah, these issues raise a lot of really foundational 
questions about democracy, particularly how it's developed in the United States, which I talk about the most, not because I think it's most important, but just because it's what I'm most familiar with and I've studied more of the history. Um, but, you know, we had this regulatory structure begin to emerge in a time where there was actually kind of violent contestation between workers and factory owners. And it was a, an arena where there was perhaps a more plausible case for generating some clarity around what the the burdens and the responsibilities uh, and of both sides were. So what were the rights that those workers might have had that couldn't be infringed or something. I, I don't know if I fully buy that argument, but I can at least see the plausibility of it. Um, but then what happens is that you create those pathways through which industries and big businesses can have a really significant um, impact on how regulation is shaped and crafted. And what winds up happening now is you have these popular pushes you know, really, you know, bad situations happen. We hear about working environments that we would not want to be in. Um, you know, we hear about accidents happen less less common today, but you know, more common in the um in the mid and early 20th century. Um but but it's easy to see what kind of good might be generated by crafting a kind of regulation that would set some expectations across an industry. But then public choice says, okay, once you decide that you're going to craft regulation in that way, what you have to do if you want to regulate the coal industry is that you have to ask somebody to weigh in who knows something about how the coal industry operates, just in order to be able to craft that that regulation. And all of a sudden, the coal industry has permanent seats at, at the table for how they're going to be regulated. So, so some of these regulations... I don't know. I can't recall if you talk specifically about this kind of rent seeking or regulatory capture angle in this research, but at least some portion of this body of regulation was crafted kind of at the behest or under the influence of these industries. Um, and, you know, kind of like the low income consumer or the low wage worker in general, they don't have a seat at that table. Yeah. I think that the way that you're, you know, um, asking this question or thinking about this as kind of the way that that I think about it too. It's difficult. It's a difficult problem, right? So, like, I think what we see at the at the end of the nineteenth century, the um, is just kind of a, a the rise of bigger bigger businesses, right? So, with industrialization and and the division of the advanced division of labor, specialization comes larger businesses, and then you get. Um, you know, the corporate form kind of makes it easier to finance all that and businesses get, get larger. And I think this is kind of out of out of my area of expertise, but to the extent that I've um, thought or read about this, what I think is that what ultimately happened is that um, when you removed production from like a civil society context, you lose parts of the conversation, right? So like if you think about collective action as a, as a conversation process where you have to reconcile different interests, um, 
it's all it's all about how the discourse works and who's at the table like exactly like you're saying right who gets to participate in the conversation and i think in a context of smaller businesses what happens and you know in towns within a community is that people kind of have to sort conflict out um you know, maybe on the in the market square, right, in their little towns or whatever, in villages, um, if you will. Um, and so, in that sort of context, everybody in the communities is at the table. Um, but then, when you move to a larger scale because of that industrialization and, and all that uh, stuff, then then it becomes more difficult to include everybody in the conversation. And so, then there's a conflict between labor and, and production, and there's a conflict between um, different interest groups that participate in the political process. And so the conversation is removed from the, the civil discourse context um, and it becomes a, a politicized conversation. You have to go through the official channel, channels of politics to participate in, in, in discourse rather than just sorting it out within your small community. And so that's, that's problematic. Now, obviously, there um lots of advantages to industrialized society, right? We all benefit greatly from living in this world where um, we're extremely wealthy as a result of industrialization and, and um, the relatively peaceful democratic society that we live in. But yeah, it comes with all sorts of, of problems of who gets to participate in the conversation and does the political system actually reflect the preferences of the entire community or just smaller groups and who are those groups yeah change always brings conflict and tension like even though yeah. even the best changes <laughs> that we've had in the world and this is why yeah. Hayek emphasized so much the importance of an economic system's ability to adapt to change and right. put that at the heart of his I mean that's really at the heart of his argument for the the market economy and, and why it's a superior form of organization yeah, yeah, and 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 the the recognition there that at, that's at the heart of Hayek's work is always about how do you reconcile different kinds of information and knowledge, right? And and what sorts of mechanisms are in place to to aggregate up the information? Um, and it works really well in in markets, but how does it work in politics and in different institutional contexts? Uh, shifting uh, shifting focus just a little bit. I have a couple questions just how about how economists and policy analysts think about these kinds of issues and the the scientific perspective that it is being used here um so in you've given a couple examples already about calculating kind of the cost per life saved one of your examples from the paper is that one of the more extreme examples was the asbestos regulation so um, asbestos is dangerous, but mostly only when it's being moved or if it's not properly contained. I don't know for sure, but I guess that's part of why these regulations have been so expensive because you have to go to such extraordinary efforts to remove it if you can't have it. Um, 80, $89 million per life saved. Um, so that sounds like an enormous amount of money, um, but no matter how large the amount of money is, I think for many people, there's a reaction to that where they are just very uncomfortable ever trading off um, a human life for any financial amount. Um, this is one of the things economics 
does is it forces you to face the most difficult trade-offs in life and to recognize that, you know, one of the things that your research pushes us towards is that even if, um, even if we didn't want to make that trade-off, even if we'd say, okay, we, we're happy to spend $90 million to save that life, we have to also then recognize all of the other areas that we're taking those resources away from and all the lives that potentially could have been saved if those resources were left where they were or applied to some other use. Um, but yeah. I mean, uh, I, I hope I, I, hope I didn't kind of give your, your whole answer here, but, <laughs> um, but kind of how do you think through that issue? I'm sure you've probably had some difficult, you know, it's something that I even, I don't know if you had this reaction too. It's something I feel a little bit awkward sharing with students sometimes. It's hard to shake that feeling that I'm going to come across as the callous and heartless person if I make this, these lives per dollars type of, type of arguments in front of people who aren't already familiar with them. So, so how do you think through using this approach? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're right. It's difficult. It's difficult to, to talk to students about maybe sometimes too, although I think that, um, I think that part of the conversation just reveals the silliness of the of the of the cost benefit calculus, right? That is underlying so much of what we do and and pot with policy. Um, so I think um, sharing the information can can have this effect of kind of dissuading people that it's actually reasonable to make those sorts of arguments. So like at the core, I believe that yeah, you can't uh, you can't you know, from the outside looking in, value a human life and, and make those sorts of decisions, right? And say, okay, so the Department of Transportation has a um, has a rate at which they value the human life, which is, I don't know, I think it's like, I don't know, 10 or 20 million or something like that. It might be completely off. But, um, and then any time a regulation is more expensive than that, then it's not something they should be doing. Um, I think at the end of the day, from a collective perspective, from the aggregate, you can't you can't make those sorts of choices. That doesn't mean that we don't sometimes make them though individually, right? So at the end of the day, whenever I choose not to um, buy some sort of I don't know, like safety contraption, like say for a car or something like that, the upgraded airbags, or like we used to have a choice over whether or not we wanted to buy a rear view camera. Um, uh, you know, those sorts of things, we make those sorts of choices all the time. And that means we do value um, human life and we do put a monetary amount on, on a human life, at least um, implicitly, right? Even if we're not totally aware of it. But if I say that I'm not going to spend $100 on this rear view camera, um, you know, I, d I just, I, that means that I've also decided that I don't value um, life at this at this rate essentially right um, because there's a probability of back over accidents happening as a result of you not having a, a rear view camera and so that means that you've implicitly made a judgment about how much you what value you place on life so I think we do those sorts of things individually all the time and I think it's okay for individuals to make those choices because you and I know how we what we think about our own lives and what the trade-offs are that we face and how we want to allocate our resources but I think it becomes a lot more difficult when you go to an aggregate level and have, you know, government agencies decide over the value of a human life. But, um, I, I mean, I think once you once you bite the idea that government has a role in making those sorts of decisions, then you also have to make the conversation as rational as possible. And the only way to constrain discourse is to try to put um, 
numbers on it and say, so this is the risk reduction you're buying. This is, you know, the reduction in fat fatalities from back over accidents that you get from having rear view cameras. And so if the regulation costs this much um, for the overall population, then the, the value of life that you're implicitly assuming here is, I don't know, uh, $50 million. And that's, that's much higher than what we usually do. So we shouldn't do it or something like that. But yeah, so I don't, I don't like it. I don't think that it's, that it's right to do it at an aggregate level. I think individuals make choices all the time, though, that that contain risk assessment and, and valuation. But I think those sorts of decisions should probably be left to the individual. Somewhat related, there are some frameworks for economic policy analysis that take a more utilitarian perspective. You know, co the cost-benefit analysis you mentioned probably being one of those. So depending on how you structure your, your utilitarianism. Um, you can make an argument that we should be more concerned about the overall net effect of a regulation than any kind of distributional impact, which of course is a challenge to this whole perspective. So, you know, if you're taking hardcore utilitarian, then um, you're willing to you're willing to um, maybe accept a regressive policy as long as the benefits are generated are greater than the than the costs, kind of no matter who's who's getting the benefits and who's getting the costs. Of course, I mean, there are major political and public choice issues with that. Um, but what is your reaction to that view? Do you, do you think that's baked into cost benefit analysis? Um, and then also just kind of the you know, with that, what's your reaction to just kind of this general approach of how much should we emphasize efficiency and how much should we emphasize equity when we're thinking about these kind of policy decisions? Yeah. So, I mean, I think cost-benefit analysis kind of is, um, is very, very hard to do well. And, and the reason is that um, there are all, all kinds of costs and benefits that I can come up with, with, you know, for almost any policy that anyone, anyone, almost anyone could argue that there is a cost that's missing from a particular cost benefit analysis or that there is a benefit that's missing from a particular cost benefit analysis. So I think depending on how you structure your analysis, you can get lots of different numbers. So it's not very um, objective um, you know, this kind of goes back to our conversation about normative and positive, like you're always going to bake in normative assumptions about what what should be valued and what shouldn't when you make these sorts of calculations. So I don't think that you can be like a utilitarian that actually tries to figure out, you know, the true cost or the true net benefit of this particular policy. I think that's kind of all made up most of the time. Yeah, um, it's, it's often far less scientific than it seems, particularly since often many of the most important values people care about are not easily quantifiable. And, and you can't put anything that's not easily quantifiable into a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. And, it, and it's it's surprising that people, you know, if you read some of the documentation that comes with, with proposals for regulation, a lot of the time, you know, they'll be very explicit about the benefits of the policy and then just kind of dismiss the costs. And that's just very, like, upfront. And some of that, some of that documentation is kind of hilarious, um, how little people actually care about doing it, doing it in a way that kind of accounts for all kinds of different costs and benefits. People clearly have, um, cl clearly have perspectives that they go into, um, 
for these sorts of analysis. Anyway, so yeah, so that's kind of my take on cost-benefit analysis. I don't think it works. I also just have serious objections to um, how you can count costs outside of a decision context. I think kind of choice, choice, a choice environment is required for cost to actually be something um, that that we should account for. Um, kind of coming out of you know Buchanan's like way of thinking at, about this in cost of choice like I just don't think that there are um, choice influenced cost <laughs> you know I, I think it's all choice influencing cost and, and so it's only ex ante that you can really talk about this stuff um, but yeah so that's that's kind of just the bullet that you bite when you go down this path of of um, policy at the aggregate level and I'm not sure that there's a way out of it like ultimately I think it's all a philosophical perspective right like ultimately what we have to have is just a shared understanding of the idea that no matter what quantitative analysis underpins your policy proposal here it's all kind of made up and you just <laughs> you're just kind of serving your own interests and honestly what we should be doing is having a more philosophical conversation about what the values are that we're trying to promote in our society right and if we um, if we stuck to that then we'd probably all be better off um, um, instead of making these opportunistic quantitative arguments. But, um, you know, that's just my cynical view of, of what's going on, I guess. And now when it comes to equity equity and efficiency trade-offs, yeah, um, you know, obviously it gets even more difficult when you're talking about equity than, than any kind of monetary calculation, right? Like, so... Um, what sort of equality are you talking about? Are you talking about monetary equality? Are you talking about equality of opportunities? Like what's, uh, what's the equality that you're talking about? And I think the only way that you can really talk about um, equality is kind of like as a procedural measure, like how are we all participating in this process? And is, is there, do we all have um, access in one way or another? Like, you know, those, those sorts of things are the only way in which I think conversations about equality make make sense like thinking about outcome equality just gets really hairy really quickly you know who what what is the particular outcome that you're worried about um, and are you really are you really um, considering all of the different pieces of the puzzle here that that are relevant right um, I forget where this example comes from but um, you know, it's the example with there's a flute and there's like, I don't know, four little girls fighting over it and who should get it? Is it the one that found the flute because she found it? Is it the one that actually knows how to play it? Is it the one that uh, can't buy her own because she's poor, right? There's all these different perspectives on, on um, distributional outcomes that just make it a really difficult problem to track. So I think when we think about equality, limiting yourself to kind of a procedural perspective is the way to go. Yeah, it winds up getting complicated for similar reasons that the cost-benefit analysis gets complicated. You're trying to, you're, you're asking a, a third-party expert to step outside and target a particular set of outcomes and then craft regulation to reach those outcomes. And, and you both don't know what the outcome should be. And even if you did know what they should be, you don't know how to get there. Right, exactly, yeah. Right. And even if you did know how to get there, if you tried to, to make it happen, you would forget about something and then <laughs> there would be an unintended consequence <laughs> of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, I guess all of this just, you know, is my confirmation bias coming back to bite me. And so <laughs> I, I end up where I started off and I just uh, like affirm the belief that ultimately you have to leave choices about risk 
uh, relative risk trade-offs to individuals because there is no good way to do it at the aggregate level. Well, I'd like to wrap this up by returning to our core theme. Um, so in emphasizing this liberal perspective, this you know uninhibited right to, to be yourself and to pursue opportunities is a is a push for equality, a push for uh, an approach to regulation that doesn't have such a regressive impact. Do you view that as being consistent with those liberal ideas, those ideas about freedom and individual rights? Or do you view that as being, or do you view them as being in tension with each other? Um. Well, so it, it depends on what you mean when you say push for regulations that don't have regressive effects. I think that there isn't a way to design regulation that doesn't have unintended consequences of some kind, um, and most of them will be regressive. And so I think the only way to avoid that is to not regulate or have re have less regulation, right? Um, there should be a, um, some sort of recognition of trade-offs implicit in policymaking that that um, maybe can't be there because of the way that policymaking works. Um, but that just means that there should be a limit on on the amount of policy there is, right? So it's a constitutional perspective, I guess, if you, um, if you want, right? That's where we started out. That's what you said. We share this constitutional perspective. Yeah, at the end of the day, there's just a limit to what government should be doing. Yeah. Um, and so what do you see as the greatest opportunities that we have in front of us today um, to move towards a liberal vision of a society where people can be free and relate to each other as equals. Um, I mean, I think I think that it it hasn't changed much probably over the last I don't know hundred years or whatever even longer. Like everybody kind of ends up at the same point. I think ultimately the lowest hanging fruit is just convincing people that it's that it's. Um, uh, that it's about a conversation that we should have be having about values um, and what sorts of values we want to promote in our society um, and how we can promote individual flourishing um, and maybe a recognition that comes out of this conversation about um, individual values that that accounts for um, you know individual freedom to choose for for yourself. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right. Well, I've learned so much um, from your research, from sharing your research with students. I hope that everybody checks it out. Um, and just thank you so much for joining me today to start this conversation. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.